All right, we will go ahead and get going here. Thank you for being here this evening. I'm trying to remember, was last Wednesday, was that when we had a lot of weather? There's the snow, is that right? Last two weeks, yeah. And that's balmy, it's a balmy 40 degrees out there tonight. <laughs> well, let me pray for us and we'll get going. Uh, Father, we uh, thank you for the opportunity to gather together, to open your word, to read from it, to teach it, and to hear from each other and learn from each other. We pray for your blessings on our time and just for your blessings on our evening and all the different ministries that are going on around the church. And uh, we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we are in the book of Job tonight. And it feels, at least from my perspective, it kind of feels like a a transition, you know. It's a kind of a, a new chapter, so to speak. We've finished the the narrative history. I mean, it's all history. It's all how all has narrative. But now we get to the wisdom literature, and I'm I'm partial to the wisdom literature. I like it. And so, uh, just kind of highlighting a few things. First of all, what we learn about God from Job, as we kind of look at the beginning of the the book, the beginning of the story. You're familiar with it, so I don't feel like I need to summarize it, but I'm tempted to anyway. <laughs> uh, you know the story. Job has a lot. Satan, God comes to Satan and says, check out Job. And Satan says, yeah, he's only godly because you've blessed him. And God says, okay, take it all away. Just don't harm him. And I heard a comedian one time point out that Satan took everything from him except for one thing, J- Job's wife. Right? <laughs> so... Who knows <laughs> what to infer from that? <laughs> um, and then, and, and by the way, she, she's, not, she's not a great uh, example in the book, right? Um, but then God comes to Job, or God comes to Satan a second time. And, and by the way, we have no sense that Job is not aware of this, right? And, and we don't know how often does this kind of conversation happen? We don't know. We're not told. We're just told, in this scenario, this is what happened. And God says, well, he's still faithful. You took it all away, and he's still worshiping me. And Satan says, yeah, but if you were to allow me to strike him, then I'm sure he wouldn't be. And uh, let's, let's look at chapter 2, verses 7 to 10. <clears throat> so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And so I pointed out on Sunday, there's clearly a tension in here, in this story, and it's a tension that runs throughout the Bible. And it's it's this tension. On one hand, uh, God is not the author uh, of evil. And, And for example, Satan is not able to do harm to to. To Job without God allowing it, but but God doesn't directly do it. We get the sense that God allows Satan to do it. So that's the point. There's a there's a degree of separation, so to speak. We also see in in chapter one verse twenty two, and we just read right there in chapter two verse uh, verse ten. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And then in chapter one verse twenty two. It says, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So he never blamed God. He never said, God, you did wrong here. And he's commended for that. And, and we're commended for that. And there's other verses we could point to that talk about how, you know, God doesn't do evil. We're not supposed to blame him for doing evil, that kind of thing. At the exact same time. There's also this other reality that God is clearly allowing Satan to do it. So God's not directly doing it, but God is allowing it. And and he could have hypothetically said, no, I'm not going to allow it. So God's at least indirectly involved in this. Um, And we also have 
some phrases in the book that really strongly emphasize God's role in this, right? He's, he's not just merely a passive person in the story. Uh, chapter 1, verse 21, we know this phrase. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So he didn't say Satan took it away. The Lord has taken away. So, and then the very next verse, he did not charge God with wrong. So there's the tension, right? He didn't charge God with wrong, and the Lord has taken away. We have to affirm both of these things. Um, by the way, I just read the word naked, and I, somebody used, way back in the day corrected me because maybe it was a southern thing, but I would say naked. And they said, it's not naked, it's naked. And so... I'm now very self-conscious about pronouncing it correctly. Naked, not naked. <laughs> it's a southern thing. <laughs> yeah, that's right. When you're from Louisiana, yeah. <laughs> all right, chapter uh, that was all, that was way out in left field. Chapter two, verse three. Yeah. Um. And the Lord said to Satan, I think this is really fascinating. The Lord speaking to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. That's interesting. You incited me. That's interesting. You incited me without reason. And I did it. You incited me to do, to destroy him. And I did. I destroyed him. That's pretty strong. Chapter 2, verse 10. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we, not re- shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? In the word evil, you know, I have a little footnote there that says it could be harm, trouble, trouble, disaster. So, um, but the point's the same. Like, shall we not receive the good things from God, the blessings from God, and also receive the evil things, the disastrous things, the harmful things, the taking away? Um, And then uh, in, in chapter 42, verse 11, if you want to turn there. Chapter 42, verse 11. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. Once again, that word evil in Hebrew, ra'ach, can be translated disaster, harm, but the point's the same. They comforted him for all the disaster that the Lord had brought upon him. So I made the comment on Sunday that, the, you know, the two rails that we have to stay between. One rail, we're not to blame God. He's not the originator, the author of evil. The other rail, he is in control. There's nothing that happens outside of his sovereign will. Um, he allows it. And even Job, it's even stronger language than allows it. And, and we're supposed to stay between these two rails. And I made the comment on Sunday that we have to do this in two different arenas. One is at kind of the philosophical, intellectual level where you're, you know, you're having a discussion, a debate. You're considering it. You're thinking about it. You're trying to wrap your mind around these two questions. So this is not the person who's experiencing suffering. This is just the person who's trying to philosophically wrap their head around how can I affirm both of these two truths and remain rationally you know minded person so so uh, you know I made the comment that a lot of people go through this stage of wrestling with this you know high school college age it's a kind of a common you know I say a common issue to kind of be hit with and wrestle with philosophically so I'm just curious open up for a question I mean, open it up for comment. Have you ever wrestled with this at kind of an intellectual, philosophical level? 
I'm not, I'm not yet asking at the ex- experiential level. I'm asking more at the head level. Have you ever wrestled through this, read books about it, uh, struggled with it, nailed it down? <laughs> Any thoughts on that? Sometimes called the problem of evil, the problem of pain. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, very good. Any other thoughts? Anybody else wrestle with this at kind of an intellectual level? This question? If for some people this is a, they might point to this as their reason for leaving the faith, the problem of pain. Uh, For some people, they explore this and they become a Christian as a result of it uh, because of the Christian answer to it. Because one of the we we usually try to have devotional with family on Sundays after church, and I was talking to my kids about what would you do if somebody's wrestling with the faith, or maybe the Christian faith because of this problem of evil. And one of the points I made to them is, as Christians, we can defend the Christian faith against this question and other questions. But another posture to take when you're intellectually debating this is to play offense and to say. What's your worldview? And does your worldview, can it account for the problem of evil? Right? It's one thing to say, I'm not going to believe in Christianity because of the problem of evil. Okay. So you don't believe in Christianity. What do you, and how do you account for both the evil and the good that we see in the world? Because you have to account for both. Right? How do you explain the goodness and how do you explain the pain? The Christian worldview has an answer that I think is very satisfying uh, intellectually. Uh, other worldviews, I don't think, can offer a status because some of them, like the Eastern ones, will say, "Well, the pain's just not real, right? We're just kind of physical. Physical's not really what's real. We're really just spiritual beings, and therefore the pain's not real." It's like, well, let's let's test that theory and see if you feel this. All right, <laughs> that's not the way to respond. <laughs> don't do that. Uh, you know, the, the, the more secular, Western, atheistic mentality is like all that exists is physical. That's it. Uh, so then you say, well, how do you account for it? You know, how do you account for the spiritual reality that, you know, that we naturally have an instinct toward? And we naturally know there's something more than just, we're more than just flesh and bones. We know that. And so the, the atheist, the secularist, can't really account for the existence of goodness. And therefore, they can't really account for evil until a major disaster happens in the world, and then they use the word evil. And you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> Where'd you get that category evil? I thought we were just flesh and bones. There's a mass shooting. Oh, it's evil. We agree it's evil, but we have a category called evil. You can't be a secular atheist and have a category called evil. Um, anyway. Okay, that now... So one, one way you can wrestle with this question is intellectually. Another way you can wrestle with this question is more experiential. And we all, and this, is usually, this usually happens when we are the ones experiencing the suffering. And we start saying, how and why? And how can God be good and yet allow this? And so I know it's very personal, but I'll just ask, have, have you ever wrestled with this question at an experiential level that you want to share? Yes, ma'am. Yeah. And I'm just now beginning to understand. Gone 28. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that. I appreciate you sharing that. Any other thoughts? I mean, I know we all have at some level. Anybody else interested in sharing? Okay. So we learn. I said about Job, I meant about God. 
Nobody corrected me. I got ahead of myself. We learn about God, that he's good, and he allows this, and we, we have to live in that tension. All right, now let's talk about what we learned from Job. Okay. Um, so Job, now the book transitions. Chapter 3, verse 1, Job opened his mouth, cursed the day of his birth. Job said, let the day that I was born and the night that said a man is conceived. And then we have the friends showing up. Um, where does that happen? Chapter 2. Okay, thank you. Yeah, the friends are already there. Yeah, thank you. When the three friends heard of all this evil, verse 11, they came, and so he gives the, he speaks, chapter 3, verse 1, and then they respond. And the whole look up until 38 is this kind of back and forth between Job and the friends. So that's the bulk of the book. Um, let me ask this question. They're, they're, they are there to try to comfort him. The word comfort is a key word. It's found at least eight times throughout the book. And they're trying to comfort him. Uh, we know in the end they're not very comforting. Um, somebody summarize what is kind of the general essence of the message of Job's friends? What is the main point that they're making? What's the main essence of what they're saying? You must have done something really bad for God to do this to you. Yeah. Basically. That's good. You must have done something really bad for God to do this much harm to you. Yeah. We don't know the right answers to any good excuse. Yeah. Yeah. Any other thoughts on just kind of summary? I mean, there's a lot in there. All, all, I think, you know, also implied with that is you need to identify it and you need to repent of it. And then if you do, then surely your life will go back and you'll be restored. And um, let's ask this question. Why might they think like that? Is it just... Are they just completely 100% off the rails? Or is there, is there some line of reasoning behind them that might explain why they think like this? It's what they've been taught. Yeah. Yep. Been taught this. Well, that's the way the world thinks anyway. Yeah. Right. Right. Yes. And is there any, is there any biblical teaching that might cause them this? Reap what you sow. Yeah, reap what you sow. The righteous will prosper. Yeah, so you read the Proverbs, and a lot of the message of the Proverbs is the righteous prosper, reap what you sow, do good, work hard, good things will happen. Train up a child in the way he should go. When he's old, he will not depart from it. Like this is, if you do this, this will happen, and it's it's a lot of good stuff. Yes, ma'am. That's true. Right. Right. Obedience brings blessing. We say that to our kids all the time. Obedience brings blessing. Do you want to be blessed? Obey. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so there's some principles, and they're true, they're accurate, but it's, it's one thing to say it's a principle that's generally observably true, and another thing to say this is an absolute promise that happens 100% of the time. Because that's the nature of a proverb, is it's an observation about how things work. So we, we can look at the world and make observations, and that's what the Proverbs are. They are observations of the way the world usually works. Promises. And we, and we, uh, we, we understand this. We know this. Um, the sad thing is, I think, a lot of Christians today look at people that are going through hard times with that same attitude, and it's very wrong. Yes. You know, we, we tend, because of those promises, or principles, rather, and because of the tenets of Scripture, we tend to look at something that's really going wrong, like, oh, dear, what have I done wrong, Lord? I do it myself. Yeah. 
Oh, yeah. What did I do? Yeah. That, you know, this is happening. So we just have this erroneous view of God's workings. Right. right. Yeah. You know? It's very much an instinct that we can, as you mentioned, see view other situations like this, and we can even view our own situation like this. I'm at, like all these things are happening. What uh, what do I need to do to get out of this? Yeah, yeah, that's good. Um, so yeah, God says to them, chapter forty-two, verse seven: My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. In other words, Job has been more correct in all of his speaking than you guys have. Um, so why, I, I think we've answered it, but I'll ask it anyway. Why are they ultimately rebuked? Because they didn't have God's character. They only reflected man's character. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. Any other thoughts on why they ultimately get rebuked? Yeah. If they if they had uh, left after seven days and seven nights, that that would have set a, a good example for all believers how to act. Yeah. When, when someone is going through a severe trial. Yeah. Go in, weep with them, give them a hug, and go home and keep your mouth shut. Yeah. Very good. Right. Right, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, interestingly, um, we know, like we've been given this view, we know why, you know, in a way that nobody else does in the story. And so we know it's not that Job did something wrong. Um, And yet he had all this happen to him, and here they are just for 35 chapters, just basically saying the same thing over and over. You must have done something wrong. You must have. And they're, they're speaking, they're, they're presuming to speak for God. And it's just, we, they're just not right. Like, it's hypothetical. You could have another story where they would be right. Uh, where a person is experiencing this because of sin. We can imagine a person living a life, making bad decisions, and having to experience serious consequences of it. And we could point and say, it is because of your sin that you're experiencing all of these consequences, right? I mean, we could hypothetically imagine a scenario where a person is just making bad decisions left and right and reaping consequences left and right. And we would say to them, you're making bad decisions. And we, I mean, I say that to my kids all the time. <laughs> uh, so the problem is, in this scenario, they're, they're just dead wrong. That's just not, it's just not accurate. It's not right. It's not, it's not the explanation for Job's suffering. Um, so my question is this. Have you ever had someone try to comfort you in a way that was either helpful or unhelpful? Yeah, I did. Helpful or unhelpful? Uh, not really helpful, uh, but I understood their intention because... sick with a brain tumor. They didn't know it was a brain tumor. And she died when I was 11. She was 30. Mm. She left four children. I was the oldest. Wow. And I remember today seeing cars coming to our house, people milling around. And uh, I remember being in a fog. Mm. I was in a literal fog. I don't even remember what they said, but good intentions. Right. It meant, it meant nothing. Mm. Even the pastor coming in, it meant nothing. Mm. But I mean, I didn't get bitter about it or and go questioning God. I, I had accepted Christ about a year earlier. Wow. I think Job, what he teaches us, we talked about it last week, about the fundamentals, the, the basics, the foundation. Job <coughs> nailed it. He nailed it. He didn't try to figure out why, what's, what's going No. He, he, God. Mm-hmm. 
it's all God. Mm-hmm. He's sovereign. He's my God. He's almighty. Right on. And he, he held on to that. Right on. And that kind of faith will get you through. Right on. Yeah, that's good. Thank you for sharing. Any other uh, uh, examples of ways you've been comforted that were helpful or unhelpful? It is it is tough because in in that scenario you want to say something profound, you want to say something life changing, you want to say something revolutionary, you want to say something besides just. I'm sorry, and I'm praying for you, but there's, <laughs> that's probably the best thing, and there's, there's usually nothing revolutionary to be said. Don't go in saying, well, you know, all things work together for good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You might get slapped. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. What are some other lessons we can learn from these friends when we're comforting someone? I think what I've heard summarized, it's not, it's not the time and place to go in trying to answer because when a person's wrestling with this experientially they're not necessarily looking for the philosophical that was one of the points i tried to make and didn't make it um there's a there's wrestling with the philosophical level and there's wrestling with this at an experiential level and when people are wrestling with it experientially they rarely are interested in the philosophical <laughs> and so the thing to not do is try to give them all the philosophical explanation you know that there's a time and place for that but not usually when we're like struggling and in the fog that's not the place for a a, a, a philosophical debate on the existence of evil Sorry. yes sir Doug. what are some examples of things you were saying that's funny I remember Whitney telling me with one of our kids, you know, she wanted me to count. And I can't, I guess, do the contraction. And so I was counting, and I kind of thought it had eased up, so I stopped, and she said, <coughs> Keep counting. <laughs> <laughs> like, why'd you stop? <laughs> All right. Any other thoughts on uh, lessons we can learn from the friends? Yes, ma'am. Wow. Right, right. Being there and meet a practical need. That's good. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Thank you for sharing that. Any other thoughts on any of that? I will share, Pastor. When my first husband was dying, he was a pastor. And we had moved down to Louisiana for me to work in a ministry down there. And um, one night after service, I was really broken up and crying. And my pastor's wife then was with me, and she started kind of trying to comfort me with, you know, things from the scripture and uh, the goodness of God and his presence being with you during that time and that kind of thing. And I remember her walking along with me and saying, Hey, I know you know all this stuff. I said, Yes, Francis, but I need to hear it from you right now. Mm. So it's sometimes they already know, but mm-hmm. they need to hear a friend give them a, a buoy, you know. Well, a, a it's good. Lift. Be reminded of what I already know to be true. Right, yeah. Exactly. That's good. Good point. Thank you. Any other, did you have a thought? Oh. I was just saying, don't neglect, but she just kind of stole my answer. Like, oh. don't neglect the basics of. Yeah. And those are just the basics of, of don't don't like think so highly of yourself that like, hey, I'm here to help you or this is what I'm gonna do for you. 
you got to, you know, what, what can what can what yeah. for me? Like, yeah. You know, as, as what service is, is, is taking that into account. How does somebody want to be served and what can you do for them other than like, hey, I know, I know how to fix this. Like, I'll, I'll come in and do that. Right on. Yeah, great point. Thank you. Any other thoughts on lessons we can learn from? These are kind of a, this a negative example, right? Some, some are the examples of the Bible that are positive examples. Some are negative. I always think it's fascinating. There was one guy in church history. I don't remember who it was, but he famously preached through the book of Job on Sunday mornings over 40 years in a, to a congregation. <laughs> 40 year expositional sermon. You know, it's kind of the opposite of what I did. One sermon, <laughs> Job. <laughs> But I'm, yeah. but I'm just thinking, like, what do you do in the midst of this line by line through each of the friends' comments? Like, I would think there's only so many ways to say, they said this and it was wrong. <laughs> he said this and it was wrong. It is powerful. I've seen it twice. That ministry of visitation that you show up and you don't say anything. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, years later, they will they will remember that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And it's awkward, but um, I think we can learn from him. Show up, you know, from the three friends. Mm-hmm. Show up a second. Take the example of the first seven days. Just yeah. Be quiet. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Any other thoughts on that? Okay. Man, I wrote it down wrong again. This was supposed to be what we learned from Job's friends. <laughs> I had no 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 defense. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> too much melatonin. <laughs> That's good. Good point. All right. Uh, What we learn from Job. I'm pretty sure this is right. (laughs) Uh, Let's point out a few ways that Job responds faithfully that we can learn from. I mentioned some of these on Sunday. Job 13, 15. Job 13, 15. So I'm going to read it, and then just what are some principles we could draw out, lessons we can learn, takeaways from this. Job 13, 15. Though he slay me, I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face. Any thoughts, principles, truths, draw out, apply from this verse? Yeah, that's good. I'm going to repeat what you said. God is big enough to take all your questions, doubts, and fears to Him. That's right. Sometimes we we maybe subtly teach, don't question, don't doubt. You're right. God's big enough. He can handle it. If you got questions and doubts, be honest, and but go to Him with it. And it's a difference. There's a difference. You, it's possible to doubt in a way that just says, I'm just a skeptic and I just question everything versus why going to God with why and where, you know, and there's an authenticity that he welcomes. And we're going to talk this coming Sunday about the Psalms. And one of the types of Psalms are the lament Psalms. And I'm going to make the point. God gave us lament Psalms to help us lament and to cry out. It's God inspired scripture that's meant to be used to help us voice our our emotions, our questions, our doubts, he gave them to us. Like he gave us God-inspired scriptures, which ask questions like, how long and where are you? So are, is it okay for us to ask those questions? Absolutely. But there is a difference between the skeptic who's asking questions skeptically with the intention of trying to disprove versus the honest to goodness. Like, I'm, I'm struggling here. Help me. Help my unbelief. So that's good. Um, 
Yeah, I like that. I like the way you said that. God's big enough to handle our weaknesses, our questions, our doubts. Yeah, yeah, good point. Good point. Absolutely. Any Yes. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yes. It's like bring it on. Yeah. Whatever. The worst that could happen can happen. Yeah. Our hope is settled in Christ crucified. Right on. It's good. Mm-hmm. You know, as long as I'm faithful to him, I have a promise of being with him one day. Right. So whatever happens along the way, no consequences. Hmm. Yeah. Big eternal perspective. Very good. And you, th- this phrase, I will argue my ways to his face, reminds me of your comment. He, we, can, we can argue, we can go to him and... and uh, wrestle all right very good another one that i was going to point out and did point out on sunday was chapter 28 verse 28 chapter 28 verse 28 and he said to man behold the fear of the lord that is wisdom and to turn away from evil is understanding. This is a key, a key section of Job here. Um, you know, back in verse 23, God understands the way to it. He knows its place. He looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, that phrase, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. That's a phrase that we see in the Proverbs. We see it in other wisdom literature. The fear of the Lord. Um, and so let's define that. What, what does that mean? What is the fear of the Lord? To live, what does it mean to fear, live with the fear of the Lord? Because that is wisdom. Yeah. Respect, honor, obedience. Because we tend to think of fear, like, and there's even verses that say not, not to fear. So we tend to think of, Fear is being bad, something you're not supposed to do. Obviously, he says the fear of the Lord is wisdom. So there's, there's a sense, there's a, there's a type of fear that's unhealthy, but there's also a type of fear that's very healthy and we're supposed to have. What is that type of fear? Obedient effect? What else? What, is it, what, is it, what does it mean to fear the Lord? Honor? Yeah. I guess I, I kind of think of it like we're going to ultimately be live in fear of something, like in fear of losing something, in fear of not gaining something. We're, so we're concerned. I, guess, I think the point is live with as if God's your ultimate concern. Is he pleased? You know, the, the, you've heard the phrase, an audience of one. Audience. Is he pleased? I'm, my, my, cons, my greatest concern is that he's pleased. And if he's pleased, whatever can happen can happen. Though he slay me, I'll put my hope in him. But that... To fear him in that way is wisdom. And I, and I think the wisdom literature is largely about navigating life. Not, life is chaotic, sometimes uncertain, sometimes the, the natural law, uh, the moral law we talked about earlier, just so sometimes it doesn't work like that. So how do you navigate life, given all the parameters? How do you navigate life in a way where you're able to keep going, you're able to be faithful, do what you're called to do, living with the fear of God. I think that's what wisdom is, right? Wisdom is not being a, a, a man who just sits around, like, you know, you picture this wise man on the edge of a cliff contemplating. I think that's, that's kind of the, there, there may be a time and place for that. Wisdom, how to practically get through life and do it well and, and, and do it before the Lord. That's what wisdom literature is about, navigating life well. And, of course, that means living before God. And sometimes it means living before God in the midst of suffering. Sometimes we're called to suffer. And I think there's wisdom in recognizing that. 
Sometimes we're called to suffer, like Job was. And God has a purpose in it. And God's purpose is very different from Satan's purpose in our suffering. And I think that's one of the big themes of this book. Job suffers. Satan has a particular purpose for his suffering. God has a very different purpose for his suffering. Satan wants to prove that Job doesn't really worship God. He doesn't really fear God. He just likes the blessings that God can get him. And there's some song that talks about the gift, the giver and the, what is it? The giver, the one who gives the gifts or the gift. Y'all know that song I'm talking about? Is that a country song? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if it's a country. <laughs> I, was, I am considering quoting little Hank Williams this Sunday, though. <laughs> Speaking of a country song. Uh, and the senior, I saw the light. Something about, oh, yeah, do you know Carmen? Oh, I thought you were going to sing it for us. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right on. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. Um, I can't remember the exact phrase. Something about do you go after God because of the the gifts that he gives, or do you go after the giver of the gifts, right? After him because of who he is or going after him because of what he can give you. And Job, uh, Satan wants to prove that Job only worships God because God gives him the good things. And he take the good things away, he won't worship. And God wants to prove that Job, though you take the gifts away, the blessings away, still is faithful, still worships God, still doesn't blame God, still doesn't curse God. Uh, and he proves, he proves to be faithful in the end. And God knows he will, right? I'm actually reading a book right now on open theism, this idea that God doesn't know the future. And uh, you know, here's an example. of God knows. This is why God allows it to happen. He knows Job's going to prove faithful, which is going to ultimately prove that God is worth the glory. Um, so what are some examples of things that we may, without knowing, be potentially worshiping God in order to get? What are some of those gifts, some of those things that in our flesh we might be tempted to say, I'll be faithful to him, I'll worship him, I'll go after him in order, in order to get this or to not lose that? Sir? Oh, I thought you were answering. I'm oh, sorry. <laughs> I think when you're pursuing like a godly spouse in the church, you're like, okay, I've got to do all this, X and Y. My life's got to equal this because like you put uh, a wife as a trophy up there, but really there's nothing you can do because it's a gift from God. That, right. Or at least mine, mine's a gift. <laughs> <laughs> we know that's the only possible explanation. <laughs> Right. Deserve it either way. It's just, you know, yeah. It's, you see the Lord orchestrating well that 
Yeah, that's good. Thank you. Any other thoughts on ultimatums we give God? I'll, I'll worship you, but don't. I've heard some people say, you know, he, he just better not call me to go halfway around the world, right? <laughs> or uh, I'll marry this person, but we're, we're not going to be missionaries halfway around the world. It's like, I'll worship you, but I'm not going to give my life away for this. Yeah. 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 That's a good point. That it, it impacts evangelism because we can evangelize in a way where we sell the gifts more than and the benefits more than we sell God Himself. It's like you know, and the gospel is ultimately you can be right with God, uh, right with your Creator. And there's all kinds of incredible benefits that come with that. Eternal life and adopted and purpose in life and, you know, all kinds of wonderful benefits that are, and I don't think it's, I think it's good to talk about these things, even when we're sharing the gospel. But there is a way to talk about it where it's so much of an emphasis on the the blessing, so to speak, the benefit, so to speak, and we're, we miss the person of God. He's he's the treasure. He's the he's the ultimate. Because you know sometimes even just the way we talk about heaven, like be a Christian, go to heaven. Well, what, what's so great about heaven? Because God's there. You know, it's ultimately God. And but so anyway, that's a good good point, Doug. Right. 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 Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I've I've seen and heard of some pretty, like in children's ministry, you know, you're talking to five-year-olds, you know, like, how many of you want to go to heaven? Like, if a five-year-old's not ready, you got a real issue, you know? <laughs> you could get a five-year-old, yes, I want to go to heaven. You know, do you want to go to hell? No. Like, it's pretty, so we got to be careful, especially, I think, with children as well, how, how we explain this and present this. Um... Okay. I'm trying to decide if I should share this or not. <laughs> I think I'll transition and press on. <laughs> Certain church I heard about that would do all kinds of crazy stuff with kids. You know, if you'll just come, we'll do X, Y, and Z. All right. <laughs> all right, finally, what we learn from God. Um, so the point here is this. Um, I, I don't think it's sufficient for us to just say, we need to worship God for who he is. That ought to be the only thing that must. And then we all just leave here and say, okay, we're, you know, we're going to view God as an end and not a means to an end. There's got to be, something's got to happen, something more significant. And uh, I'm, I'm arguing that we got to have a right view of God. It's a, it's a proper view of God that will change us and cause us to say, wow. He's not just a means to an end. He's the ultimate end himself. Uh, so first of all, we have to come to a right view of just who he is. And I think that's a pretty big emphasis in Job. As you mentioned, Carmen, and Job is asking the why question throughout. And in the end, God doesn't answer why to him, but God does answer who. Who am I and who are you before me? And so let's look at chapter 38, verses 1 through 5. And just read a little bit about God's speech to Job. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? And it goes on and on and on. Let me just, are there any particular phrases you uh, are especially partial to throughout this section? I think when you're talking to 
atheist and you bring up the, the stuff about when he asks him, uh, like, um, you know, to what were its foundations fastened, and you think about that just our pure existence, even in, from the most scientific point, is a something floating in the middle of nothing, full of something that goes on infinitely. So, like, mm -hmm. that question is, like, you can't, like, you can't even fathom the basics of how large this is, let alone how infinite it is. Right. So go ahead and, like, sit down, because so many people want to argue, well, like, I understand astrophysics, and you're like, dude, you don't even, you're not even coming close to that, but you're making a judgment <laughs> on the universe, and you say, like, why are the stars, like, you know, why can you see the stars? Well, it's because the, the, the light never ends, right? If it were enclosed and there was, and you could see light reflecting off of it, but, like, you know, just sit yeah. down and, and, you know. Yeah, it, there's... It, like science mixed in like it so when like one of my the, the lawyer at work always says like these are just ignorant sheep herders and I'm like these aren't ignorant sheep herders they understand that the universe is infinite expansion right. and all these other things like wrapped in there he's like giving them the, the God's giving us the nuggets of science so early on yeah that's good you don't, you don't even recognize that right? it's good too, too smart for their own good yeah, yeah. It's, it's such common sense it is common sense you just look at the creation and you know there's a creator um, any other thoughts? Any favorite lines from here? Okay. Um, so the point is, he's God. We're not. We won't fully understand everything. Job won't. We won't. Um, and I, I made the point, he's worthy of our worship, even if we didn't benefit at all from it. Even if there were no benefits, he's still worthy of our worship. Um, do you find that helpful to consider it from that perspective? Is that is that a helpful consideration? That God is worthy of our worship, even if hypothetically I didn't benefit at all. Even if hypothetically I spent the rest of eternity in hell, he would still be worthy of my worship, even if there was zero benefit to me. Is that, a, is that helpful to consider, or is that too out there? Yeah. And I pray that it would be that way for me if that ever came to that point. Right on. Right on. I think, in my opinion, it makes it that much more powerful when you do add the fact that he does benefit us. It's like, I should worship him even if there's no benefit. The reality is there's all these incredible benefits. How much more so should I be motivated to worship? I should worship even if there was zero. In fact, there's an infinite number of them. How much more infinitely should I be motivated to worship him. And so, uh, you know, I made the point on Sunday, I think the book is pointing to a future resurrection, hope, future re restoration. And by the end of the book, we do see a partial restoration with Job and his stuff. And he gets children back. And somebody emailed me, and I thought it was a helpful observation. They said, you know, Job lost his 10 children, but, um, you know, event, but then gained 10 more. And one day in heaven, potentially he'll have 20. Okay, that's an interesting observation. Um, but he's not restored, and he goes, and he dies, right? He dies after 140 years. That's pretty good, but it's still 140 years. And in the grand scheme of things, even that's pretty minimal. He died an old man and full of days. But I, I want to go back and look at this, this key passage that we looked at on Sunday, Job 19. Verses 25 to 27. I think Job's talking about a future resurrection. Sometimes more liberal-leaning scholars don't think so, but... Oh, well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, chapter 19, verses 25 to 27. Uh, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold another. My heart faints within me. I like that last phrase. My heart faints at the thought of this. So what are some truths, some principles we could gather from this, draw out from this that should encourage us? 
hope. Settled hope. Good. What was that? I'm sorry. Yeah. He lives. Therefore, I can. I can go. I know my Redeemer lives. Therefore, I can live. I can press on. It's good. Yeah. Right on. Yeah, it's a good reminder that Job's saying this while covered in sores and just lost everything. Any other thoughts on lessons we learned, truths, principles? Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. It's good. I know my Redeemer lives, verse 25, and that at the last he will stand upon the earth. So I, I'm taking that to mean at the last, like in the end, he will stand upon the earth. If you think about that, you take it literally, uh, Jesus does stand on the earth, right? The Redeemer does literally stand on the earth. I know at the last he will stand upon the earth. Verse 26, my skin has been thus destroyed. So I take that literally, like after I die, my skin's been destroyed. After I die, verse 26, yet in my flesh I shall see God. So think about that. He's talking about one day in the future, after I die, I will see God in my flesh, not just as a spiritual being, but as a resurrected human, a resurrected body in my flesh. I think he's talking about a future resurrection. In my flesh, one day, I will see God. So he'll have eyes to see. And we know, you, you know, we can see God in the person of Jesus. Like literally see him, eat with him, touch him. In verse 27, whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. So, you know, I, I made the point, you fast forward and Jesus literally does stand on the earth. He is the Redeemer. Dies, stands again, leaves, but promises to one day return and stand again on the earth. And we have this hope that one day we will, even though we die, we will stand again in the flesh and see him with our eyes and behold him. And this is my final question. Why, why does our belief in the resurrection, future return of Christ, future restoration, why does that, why should that give us great comfort today when we suffer? Yeah. Right on. Point. That reminds us that the temporariness of, of life, you know, we, we feel like today, all the issues of today are so pressing, so big, so major. You kind of just get a little perspective. Like, it's not. It's important. Like, do, it, do it well. Do it right. But here today, God tomorrow. But there's more. There's a future. Any other thoughts? On why this idea of Future resurrection, futuration should provide us comfort today in the midst of whatever suffering we might experience. Yeah. Oh, this is where, you know, the, the, those in the more liberal camp, well, surely a person couldn't have a, a future knowledge or future understanding. So I, I don't I don't know. It, it, it also kind of gets to this question of when was it written? What had he been exposed to? Um, so I don't know for sure the answer. Uh, I mean, I, I would certainly want to affirm and will affirm 
that he's inspired by the Holy Spirit in writing. And so that's certainly a part of the answer. But also the human authors are writing within their knowledge and their understanding. And so I would say it's probably like a lot of prophecy in that he understands some of it, probably doesn't understand it to the same extent that we do. We can now look back and go, oh, wow, this is this is incredible because the Redeemer does literally stand on the earth. Did, did he was he I don't think he was picturing Jesus Christ, you know, standing on the earth, the second person of the Trinity. I don't think his theology was devastant, but there's. Yeah. And he had he had scriptures and stuff to go by. Right. Right. And so and he said that that was revealed by the Holy Spirit. That's why I kind of think Yeah. That's where it's coming from. Absolutely. I mean, I certainly would want to I certainly would, uh that the Holy Spirit inspired is a is a part of his ability to know this. It, is that is that the only explanation is that there could be some other explanation in addition to it? That there's some there's some teaching there's some there's some I mean there there's seeds of future resurrection all throughout uh, you know uh, that Abraham will will receive the inheritance though he dies you know there's this there's a an implied and a subtle promise of future resurrection that becomes really clear and prominent and explicit in the New Testament and so. I don't, I don't know if that answers. It's a great question. I, I don't. Maybe that gets toward it, but it's good stuff. Well, him returning to the earth and us being resurrected is the hope that is within us mm-hmm. that they ask us to give an account of. Right? Mm-hmm. Always be able to answer that. And interesting to know that it's the same hope that Job has mm-hmm. all those centuries and millennia before. Mm-hmm. So it's true. Mm-hmm. It's not like just. Right, right. Yeah, it goes and back. Those saints who have died before Christ came on the earth. Right, we're going to be resurrected and stand with the Lord. So that's our hope. Right, yeah. I think one other thought that comes to my mind in the, in this discussion concept that um, you know in the Psalms there's a lot of talk about he comes to judge. And we often think, well, that sounds very negative. But the judgment is him returning and restoring and making it right, putting things in the right place. And so one day when Jesus returns, he returns to stand on the earth to judge and make things right and put everything right back in order. And you get little gunnies here the first time, little miracles. and you know, One day the whole creation will be like it's supposed to be. And the Romans talked about the creation is groaning for that day. All of creation's groaning. And so when we are suffering, oftentimes it, it's an injustice or it feels like an injustice. Like, I want this to be made right. And we have this hope one day it will be. There may be a little partial justice is performed here. If you get done wrong, go to court. It can be made right partially. But true ultimate justice is never fully accomplished in this world partially and we want and we we promote it and we want it there to be justice one day it'll be perfect justice and and therefore when i'm wronged or when i'm in pain or when i'm suffering now i can look forward to that day knowing one day it will get put right god will sort it out and i can it comes now with the knowledge one day it'll be sorted and made right all right would somebody be willing to pray for us dr d would you be willing to pray for us Thank you.
from the not from your presence. We ask, O oh God, that you would protect us on the way and bring us back together at your time. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you.